Merry Christmas. It's so wonderful to be able to start our Advent series for this year, for 2021. Uh, sorry, taking the mask off has fiddled a bit. Okay, I think we're good now. Um, and so, yeah, this is the morning where we're going to be starting our Advent series. It's kind of loosely based on this book by Tim Keller, which is called Hidden Christmas, The Surprising Truth Behind the Birth of Christ. And a quick little read and yeah, we'd commend it to you. Um, and so we have a series of sermons which are kind of loosely based on some of the same passages that uh, Tim Keller talks about. And this morning we are going to be talking about what a well-known Christmas passage, hey? How many times have we heard this one? A few. Um, Isaiah is full of rich prophecies like this, things that speak about a coming Messiah. Messiah, Emmanuel, like we sang about, God with us, a child to sit on David's throne, the shoot of Jesse. We are right to see Jesus in these passages, but, but let's not rush past this prophecy. Messiah, Jesus, check. Okay, good. What's for lunch? We've had an Advent service. No, no. We are going to slow down a little bit, and we're going to take a few minutes to see Isaiah's message in its context to the ancient Israelites and the message to us today. When Isaiah wrote this prophecy, Israel was having a terrible time. It seemed as if the promises God had given long ago were breaking. The central message to Isaiah's hearers is also a timely message for us. And like them, we need to respond by awaiting God's promises, even if they don't seem to be coming true yet. Specifically, we're going to look at the promise of a breaking light in verses 1 and 2, the promise of broken oppression in verses 3 to 5, and the promise of an unbreakable kingdom in verses 6 and 7. So let's get started with verses 1 and 2, the promise of a breaking light. So where are we? in God's great story of redemption. We're in the Old Testament, so we're focused on God's relationship with his covenant people, Israel. Isaiah is one of the major prophets, and you find him after the, the wisdom literature and things, and he lived in the time of the divided kingdom. So there's been a lot of water under the bridge so far, and we need to catch up on some of the story to understand that context. This is long after God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. Remember that? Well, that's good, because these folks didn't. Long ago, the Israelites had been under the thumb of the world's dominant superpower, Egypt. And, and Jordan, can we just... That's a little maybe ringing. Um, sorry. <laughs> um, there was no way that they could escape or fight the Egyptians, no way to save themselves from bondage or oppression, but God delivered them miraculously. Then he told them over and over to remember that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. They were supposed to remember and to teach their children to remember. But the people didn't do what they were supposed to do. Over and over, instead of remembering God's deliverance and trusting in him, the people looked to the so-called gods of the people around them. Over and over again, they forgot the Lord who brought them out of the land of Egypt and served other gods. 
Then, when some foreign oppressor made them desperate, they'd remember to call out to God, who'd save them with a judge, a hero, someone like Gideon. Remember Gideon? Hmm? Well, that's good, because he's going to come up again later. After God rescued the people, he'd be, they'd be thankful for about five minutes, and then they'd go right back to their old ways, in a downward spiral. Eventually, God gave Israel a king. After a bit of a false start with Saul, God gave them King David. And for a while, things seemed pretty good. God was worshipped, the kingdom grew and expanded. God promised David that a line of kings would come from him and that his throne would be established forever. Now, King David was by no means perfect, but he was a man after God's own heart, and the son he was given to sit on his throne, Solomon, represented the pinnacle of the kingdom, shining in fame, reflecting God's glory to the nations. But 200 years later, in Isaiah's time, things were very different. Once again, the people and the kingdom were spiraling downwards. After Solomon, the king had split into two, Judah with Jerusalem and David's line of kings, and the northern kingdom, simply called Israel. Both kingdoms turned away from God, turning to false gods and darkness. In the northern kingdom, it was bad king after bad king after bad king, taking the people far from God. This is the time of Hosea and Amos, which Steve Dawes been preaching through. And we've heard in those sermons that God was not pleased with their false worship, even if they thought they were good. In the south, Judah had a few bright spots interspersed with all of the darkness. The most recent of those was when King Uzziah reigned. But as Isaiah 6 says, we're starting to catch up to our passage. Sorry, it's lots of context, but we're not preaching all the way through the book, so need a little bit of backfill. Um, but as Isaiah 6 says, King Uzziah is now dead. The people hear God's word, but don't understand. They see but don't perceive. Their ears are heavy, their eyes are blind, and they are destined for judgment and exile with only a remnant to return. They might still be going through the motions, but Isaiah 8 tells us that they ignored their God and his word. When they needed help and guidance, they didn't inquire of the Lord. They tried to contact the dead. So let's take a look now at the end of Isaiah 8, just leading into the passage that we're focusing on today. Starting from verse 19. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry they will be enraged and speak contemptuously against their king and their God, and turn their faces upward, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Merry Christmas, huh? <laughs> so that's the context into which Isaiah speaks here in chapter 9. So in that context, amid all that darkness, gloom, and distress, 
what did God have to say to his people through Isaiah? Well, how does chapter 9 start? But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So what do we see here? A former time and a latter time, a before and an after. In the former time, there's contempt and judgment, but in the latter time, there's hope and an impossibly great light. And we'll see just how impossible it is as we go through this. So far in Isaiah, the people have been described as spiritually blind and walking in darkness, and yet in the latter time, these blind people have seen a great light. To the people of Isaiah's day, Everything looked grim and dark and gloomy, but in the prophetic vision that God gave Isaiah, the light has already dawned. It's as if he's looking back on things that are yet to happen and declaring them already done. It's a kind of prophetic perfect tense for those who love grammar. So, and who doesn't? Um, so what makes the difference between the former and the latter, the darkness and the light? Where does this light come from? So let's look at the source of this light. Who likes Christmas lights? Yeah, me too. I love Christmas lights. The only reason I have not had Christmas lights on my house for at least the past week is because all of my time has been going into preparing for this sermon. Uh, but apart from that, there would be Christmas lights on the Anderson house, believe you me. Those little light bulbs shining in the dark, they're beautiful. And they're symbolic. They're meant to remind us of a light in darkness. But where does that light in the darkness come from? One popular sentiment is that we all have a light that comes from within us. And if we could just get together and share our light, then maybe we could fix the world. What do you think of these quotes? We've all got light and dark inside us. What matters is the part we choose to act on. That's who we really are. That's J.K. Rowling. How about... Nothing can dim the light which shines from within. That's Maya Angelou. Sounds kind of nice, doesn't it? But the truth is that the light doesn't come from within us. Look at the relationship in this text between the people and the light. Are they creating it? Are they conjuring it up somehow? No. God is not promising that if his people work really hard, maybe they can get some flickering embers going or possibly build a little fire. No, God is promising that he will dawn on them like the power of the sun. Have you ever stood outside and watched the sunrise? Maybe on a bog in Newfoundland, say in the fall of the year, perhaps? Um, first, it's dark and it's cold. You can't see one foot in front of another. And then slowly, imperceptibly, the deepest, darkest blue. That blue slowly gathers strength and lightens until you can just barely see your way well enough to pick your way along. The light grows and grows until you can see clearly and you can't believe that it was ever so dark. But then the sun actually rises. 
and you thought it was bright before, just before it rose, but now it's bright. It might be minus five degrees outside, but you and everything around you are so flooded with warmth and light that you didn't think it was possible to feel this way just five minutes ago. But imagine that we have this beautiful experience together, and then I turn to you and say, well, it's a good thing I brought this busted flashlight of mine so that we can see. The light of the dawn isn't something that we make, and it's not something that we contribute to. Only God turns deep darkness into dawn. The same God who sends discipline and judgment on a rebellious people also promises a new dawn, but not through any action of theirs. When they look for illumination on the earth or under the earth, they find nothing but darkness. But God will give light to the remnant who were in darkness. So how about you? Do you need this light? Or do you think, I have light enough? Or maybe I think I have light that comes from within me. Thank you very much. Well, without God's intervention, we walk in darkness just as deep as that of the ancient Israelites. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul tells us that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. Our natural state is to reject the light because we're blinded to it. And also because we don't want it to reveal things about our hearts. Steve Bray has been preaching through the Gospel of John. And remember these words from John 3, just after that most famous verse, John 3, 16? John 3, 19 and 20. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So we don't just need God's light to break on the world in some kind of a general way. We need it to break into our hearts, lest we prefer the darkness. Most chillingly of all, we should ask ourselves if we are like those of Isaiah's day who thought they had the light when they didn't. Listen to John's words in, or Jesus' words in John chapter 9. For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Those who think they can see without God transforming their hearts by this light are the most blind of all. You should pray and ask God if that's you. So before we move on, we need to ask one more question about these first two verses. All of this talk of light dawning doesn't happen just anywhere. Verse one mentions some specific places and uh, well done Blair on, you know, charging through with pronunciation of, uh, of those words. So why? Why Zebulun? Why Naphtali. Naphtali? I don't know. Someone who knows Hebrew better than me could probably tell me afterwards. I'm looking around. I see some faces. Uh, why not Benjamin or Dan? Among other things, it'd be easier to pronounce. Does this just mean, like, I don't know, from one end of Israel to the other? Well, no. 
all of those places are part of a specific region, the northern part of the northern kingdom of Israel. So what's so significant about that place? Well, to answer that, we're going to need to understand a bit more about Israel's situation in the world at that time. And that leads us into our second point, the promise of broken oppression. About 200 years after King Solomon, spiritual darkness in Isaiah's time was, had led to the threat of extermination. At this point, the divided kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, are both in states of terminal decline. Hundreds of years of rebellion against God lead to judgment, and they've been warned many times. Part of that judgment was going to come in the form of the Assyrian Empire. So who were these Assyrians? So far away in the northeast, the Assyrian Empire was growing. In 750 BC, this, a new emperor took the throne and he had big ambitions. The Assyrians were imperialistic, hungry for territory, and their cruelty was legendary. This new Assyrian king started conquering everyone in his path. After 20 years, the Assyrians had conquered, among other places, the whole region of Galilee. And Josh, you know, I think there's a picture you can show now. The whole region of Galilee, from the sea over to Gilead, beyond the Jordan, which includes Zebulun and Naphtali, the places that have been mentioned in verse 1. So that promise of life, oh, sorry, um, survivors were taken away to Assyria, and these new Assyrian provinces were refilled with Assyrians. So all of that region with the sort of gray stripes in it, the place where there was this promise of light, incredibly, wasn't just a region full of people who were sad, it was full of Assyrians. Thanks, Josh. So this cruel, relentless empire, the superpower of the day, was almost at the gates. The question asked of every king in this region was, how are you going to relate to these Assyrians? Because they are coming. Will you join them before they come and they conquer you? Or will you band together with others who will maybe try to fight against them? Any choice you make is going to have consequences. So in Isaiah 7, we see Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel joining up to fight against Judah and King Ahaz. Here comes this threat from the north, and God sends Isaiah and one of his sons, named Sher Yashub, to confront Asher, uh, Ahaz, sorry, King Ahaz, and tell him what to do. What will it be? Join up with Assyria? Join the anti-Assyrian forces to fight against them? No, it's neither. He tells him to be careful, be quiet, to do nothing but to trust in God. But King Ahaz isn't one for trusting. Couldn't just do nothing. I mean, when you're confronted with an enemy who wants to destroy you, you've got to do something, right? You can't just not do anything. So he tries to make his own luck the best way he knows how, by appeasing false gods, as the people of the day did. And then when that didn't work and the invasion comes, he says, well, these Syrian gods seem to be working for them, so I'll try worshiping them instead. And when some other enemies come along and start to raid Judah, Ahaz has another plan. He tries to make geopolitical chess moves. He asks for help from the king 
of Assyria. If you can't beat them, join them. One commentator said, this is kind of like a mouse losing to a rat asking for help from a cat. It doesn't end well for the rat, but it also doesn't work out well for the mouse. The king of Assyria does come to sweep the invaders out of the land, but then discovers, actually, I kind of like your land too. So Isaiah 8, 6 and 8, describes the consequences of asking for this cat's help. So that's the situation. A cruel and hungry superpower is after them, and all of King Ahaz's clever moves led to nothing. His best efforts. The divided kingdom is further divided. And the northern kingdom is about to stop existing. The southern kingdom is just a few generations behind. So into that context, what does God say in verses 3, 5 to his people Israel? You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. In verse 3, in the midst of this threat and anguish, God promises his people growth and joy. The people of Judah are faced with total oblivion. All they can see is gloom and anguish, but Isaiah, from the prophetic perspective God's given him, can see a bigger picture, a latter time. The former time does look grim, and it's worth noting that we're still in the middle of it. There is much more hardship yet to come. And yet, even in the face of that hardship, there's a better picture to be seen. So at the beginning of verse 3, Isaiah says that God has multiplied the nation. Remember, they live in a divided kingdom, and Assyria is chomping off bits of that divided kingdom. Soon there'll be nothing left of the northern kingdom, and yet God promises that in the latter time, he will multiply the kingdom, not divide it. All the people can see in front of them is despair and anguish, but God promises joy. Chapter 8 says that the people will be hungry, but here we see the promise of joy as at the harvest. The people see defeat all around them but in their and in their immediate future, but God promises joy as of the victor dividing the spoil. Life is hard for the people of Judah, and because of their actions, it's going to get harder. Remember Israel's son, Sher, Yeshu? Well, his name means a remnant shall return. God used the child's name to prophesy that not everyone was going to come back from the exile that still lay ahead. But during that exile, the remnant could hold fast to this promise of joy. Verse 4 speaks of a yoke, a staff, and a rod being broken, symbols of oppression being ended. God's people aren't to bear heavy burdens or be beaten anymore by an oppressor. God will liberate them. But look who's doing the breaking. It isn't them. Again, it's God. 
Just as they can't illuminate themselves from within, they also can't deliver themselves with earthly power or worldly wisdom or geopolitical chess moves. Just to hammer it home, we have a reminder here. It's as on the day of Midian. Now, whenever the Bible quotes itself, you should probably pay attention. So who's Midian? Anybody remember who the Midianites were? I, uh, I know that my kids just finished reading about them in our bedtime stories this past week. Um, during the time before Israel had a king, they were oppressed by a foreign power called Midian, who had a huge army, maybe 135,000 men, and they did whatever they wanted with Israel. After years of oppression, Israel finally called out to God for deliverance, and God chose an unimportant, unimpressive man named Gideon to be his instrument of liberation. Gideon raised an army of 32,000. Not bad. Not likely to defeat 135,000, but, you know, not bad. But in Judges 7, God told Gideon that his army was too small, too big. If you defeat Midian with these odds, he said, you're going to think you, or you might think you won the battle yourself. I'm going to shrink your army down to, does anybody remember the number of men in Gideon's army? Hmm? Smaller. 300. 300 men against an army of 135,000. Now, said God, when I give Midian into your hand, there'll be no quibbling over credit. Some of those other numbers, by the way, were intermediate. He kind of didn't do it all at one stage from here to here. here. Anyway. Um, so, so I'm a teacher. I like to be able to tell people, well, your answer is not completely wrong. Uh, but uh, God specializes in delivering his people from impossible odds. It's kind of what he does. Israel could trust him to rescue them from the new superpower of Assyria, just as he rescued them from Midian and from Egypt before that. Sadly, they didn't call out to God for deliverance until much later when the situation was even more desperate. But in that moment, and you can read about that in 2 Chronicles 32, we won't go into it right now, he did deliver them. And all the Israelites had to do was watch. So we see a broken oppressor, and in verse 5 we see broken oppression. In verse 5, we see that God's plan is even bigger than defeating the oppressive empire of Assyria. Ahaz's son Hezekiah did eventually trust God, and Assyria was defeated, but that wasn't permanent. The next thing you know, in the very next chapter of 2 Kings, Hezekiah is cozying up to Babylon, and that didn't exactly end well either. After the Babylonians came the Persians, then the Greeks, and then the Romans. But here, God is pointing to a larger liberation. As if it weren't enough that he end this particular oppressor in history, God promises to end oppression itself. He conquers conquering. We're not even talking in verse 5 about yokes and rods anymore. We're not talking about beating weapons into plowshares. No, in this verse, even the boots and the cloaks of conflict are being burned. God will break this oppressor, but he will also break oppression itself. 
So what do we make of this? I don't know about you, but I don't generally feel particularly oppressed as I go about my business. What does this say to us? Well, there's one thing we could think about. Well, more than one. But one thing that we could think about. You may have noticed that things aren't exactly getting friendlier for churches that preach God's word. Remember John 3. People love the darkness rather than the light. So if we go around telling people that they need God's light, that they don't have their own light coming from within, that they can't save themselves, that they need a savior, and that he will expose their deeds to the light, there will be pushback. Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So if we do find ourselves in the future encountering oppression of some kind, what should we do? Should we acquiesce to whichever power seems the most ascendant? You know, the can't beat them, join them approach? Should we cozy up to this or that political party for our deliverance? Should we trust in alliances of political groups outside the church fighting for causes like free speech? Now, it's not wrong for Christians to engage in the democratic processes that we've been blessed to live under, but we do not trust in earthly powers to save us. We don't trust in our own cleverness, and we don't trust in our own ability to make alliance-building chess moves. We trust in the unbreakable promises of God. Beyond that, in a much more immediate sense, many of our brothers and sisters around the world do know what it means to be oppressed and persecuted. There are many who have been called to suffer for the gospel in ways that we find hard to imagine. We should pray for these brothers and sisters <clears throat> that they too would trust in God's promises and not look to earthly powers or worldly wisdom. Whatever suffering may come, one day we know that God will break all oppression. And that should give us hope for whatever we may have to face. So the third promise in verses 6 and 7 is the promise of an unbreakable kingdom. So how is this incredible deliverance going to be accomplished? What mighty messianic figure will defeat the superpower of Assyria and conquer all conquering? Verses 6 and 7 say that this deliverance will come through what? A child. A baby being born will end oppression and establish an unbreakable kingdom. How? So do you remember the promises that God made to David about his descendants? In 2 Samuel 7, he said, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And sure enough, David had a son, Solomon, who built the temple, the house for God's name. His throne and his kingdom were established, but in Isaiah's day, the forever part of that promise didn't feel very plausible. The kingdom was spiraling downwards. The kings of Judah were about to lose their sovereignty, becoming vassals of Assyria or Egypt or Babylon at different times. Look, even in the time of this prophecy, the kingship itself was under threat. 
Remember the attack from Syria and the northern kingdom coming down to Judah? Well, look at their objective in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 6. What were they going to accomplish? They wanted to go up against Judah, to terrify it, to conquer it, and to overthrow the king. Then look back at verse 2. How did King Ahaz of the house of David react to this news? With quiet confidence that God was going to keep his promise to David and preserve the kingship forever? No. It says that his heart shook like a tree in the wind. Ahaz was terrified that he was going to be supplanted and that the line of David would end. But look at the promise in chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. A child to be born who would sit on the throne of David, who would have the government on his shoulder, whose kingdom would be established and upheld forever. That sounds a lot like the promises to David, doesn't it? God's promise to David would not be broken. It would be firmly established, and the kingdom would never stop increasing. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, the passionate ardor of God for his people, would do this. And yet... The promise of a child says even more than that. Children come up a lot in Isaiah. When God sent Isaiah to confront Ahaz back in chapter 7, he told Isaiah to bring a, his son with him, a son named Shear Yeshub, which means a remnant shall return. This is a statement about how God relates to his people. There will be judgment for sin, but he will preserve a remnant and bring them back to the land he promised them. Later, God tells Isaiah to name another son, Maher Shalaj Hafaz, the top baby name of 2021, I'm sure. <laughs> this name means the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. The name of this son was a statement about how God would deal with Syria and Israel as they threatened Judah. In chapter 8, verse 18, Isaiah says that he and his children are signs and portents in Israel. The children themselves are part of the prophetic message, a kind of word being made flesh. And when you add in the prophecy about the child Emmanuel, God with us, which is another big Christmas one, we see this pattern of children with prophetic names about how God relates to his people. But how about this child? What is his name? Wonderful counselor. Okay, so describing the child himself and sort of like a super wise person, maybe even like supernaturally wise. Okay, I guess that's a bit sort of Solomon-esque to continue the theme from before. Prince of Peace also kind of evokes Solomon, whose name meant man of peace. Solomon comes from Shalom, meaning peace. So that's a pretty remarkable thing in itself. The one who breaks the oppressor would not do it with his own brand of oppression and violence, but with ever-increasing peace. This is a different sort of king. But even more than that, this child is also called Mighty God, an everlasting father. What child is this? We can't be talking about an ordinary king. David was promised that God would be like a father to his offspring. I'm sorry, David was promised that God would be like a father to his offspring, but this son is called everlasting father. This child is born human, but also given 
by God. The people in Isaiah's day, first hearing this prophecy, might have taken great comfort in the knowledge that God would keep his promise to David and establish a throne forever, that this kingdom was unbreakable, but they probably would have found this part a little bit mysterious. What kind of rescuer, redeemer, messiah could be both a son of David and divine? Do you know anyone like this? So in Matthew 1, we can see some now familiar names in a list. We love lists. Who loves lists? I don't love lists. My wife loves lists. Um, in Matthew 1, we can see some now familiar names in a list. The list starts with Abraham, the father of Isaac, and Isaac, the father of Jacob, etc., and continues down to Jesse, the father of David, the king. This genealogy continues with David being the father of Solomon, and then on and on to names like Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. The genealogy continues down through the Babylonian exile. David's sons cease ruling as kings on David's throne. But the genealogy continues to Mathan, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Jesus Christ fulfills all of these promises, those given to David and to the people of Isaiah's time. He was born as a child, but given by God. He is the mighty God, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace. For a time, it looked like the Davidic line of kings would end, but Jesus' throne is established forever. In Isaiah 6, when judgment is being foretold, with Israel's tree being cut down as the metaphor, God also says that the holy seed is in its stump. Later, in Isaiah 11, God says in another famous Christmas passage that there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And Josh, if you can hit that other picture. So here's a picture of a tree that we cut down a few years ago in our backyard, and we thought it was dead. But then this spring, new life. David's line of kings looked dead. But here's Jesus bringing new life to establish his kingship forever, to rule with perfect justice and righteousness forevermore. Thanks. He will end all oppression. Jesus of Nazareth shines forth from Galilee of the nations, that place that had been overrun and replaced to the nations. John 1 tells us that Jesus is the word made flesh. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the deliverer that the people were waiting for. So, are you going to try to illuminate yourself? Like a faulty flashlight competing with the dawn? Or will you look to God's light breaking on you? Please don't be like those in John 3 who reject the light because it shows them their sin. Be freed of the bondage and oppression of that sin. Don't strive to save yourself, trusting in earthly powers and worldly wisdom. Trust in God's liberation that he promised to his people. In this season of Advent, wait for his promises to finish coming true. Because they will. Jesus came. He will come again. And he will finally end all darkness and oppression forever.
So look to him. Wait for him. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you fulfill all of these promises. God, thank you for showing us the things that people in Isaiah's page didn't get to see yet. Thank you for showing us who you are and who this child would be and how it is that you would come and be divine and human and how you would rescue your people. Now that we can see you, please help us to look to you. Help us to trust in you, not to trust in ourselves, not to trust in earthly powers, but to see our need of you and to turn to you.